The Dental Download Podcast is your source for insight into dental school, conversations with dentists, specialists, and leaders in the industry. With new episodes every Monday morning, I'm your host, Haley Schultz. Let's get into this week's episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. We have a guest today, so I'm really excited to let Dr. Vince introduce himself a little bit. Can you just kind of tell us about your educational training, how you ended up where you are, and what you're up to? Absolutely. First off, I want to thank you, Haley, for having me on. I've listened to some previous episodes, and this is a really stellar podcast. So my name is Dr. Vincent Buscemi. I am a private practice dentist in a fee-for-service practice in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And I've been out of school for eight years. Awesome. Where did you go to dental school? University of Michigan. Michigan, just like me. Love that. (laughs) Where I graduated probably bottom 10 in my class. So you can still be (laughs) successful if you're at the bottom of your class. That's so interesting. Yeah. I don't even like worry about that these days. I'm like, it'll all be fine. I just want to learn as much as I can and go from there. (laughs) That's good. Um, yeah, I like that you mentioned that you're fee for service too, because we'll definitely talk about your practice, your practice structure and like advice for dental students as they graduate and are maybe looking to purchase a practice. But before we get into that, I just want to backtrack a little bit into your background. So what was your journey to choosing dentistry and what was your pathway like? I think for most of us, we went to go visit our childhood dentist or a dentist that we knew. And we would just shadow and think, I think I can do this. So I like to work with my hands. I've always wanted to own a business. That was like number one. And I was good at science and all three kind of mixed together. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say pretty similar. Yeah. Like you said, that's a very common story for a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah. And then I worked for my childhood dentist after I graduated. And he kind of showed me the rope. So it was a really good introduction to the profession. Oh, that's awesome. And my childhood dentist retired already and sold off to someone else. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I mean, the person he sold it to is also great. And she's like, oh, if you need anything, let me know. But I probably will end up elsewhere. But you never know. Never know yeah, where never opportunity know. will strike from. <laughs> so you graduated and right away you worked for that childhood dentist. I did. So like I mentioned in the beginning, and I wasn't joking, I I was probably ranked 95 at 105 kids in the class. So my options for specializing were zero. And I really didn't want to do a GPR, although I did not feel confident leaving school. I just felt like if I did not get out and practice and get real world experience, I was never going to get better. So when you leave school, the only way to learn is to get out there and make mistakes, unfortunately. And that's the best learning, the most painful, but the best way to learn. Yeah, I, I'm i not like totally taking AGD or GPR off the table, but 
they're like backup, backup, backup. If I really can't find a dentist that wants to mentor and teach me stuff. So I, I think it's almost like why do more kind of schooling training when you can get out, get real world, real world experience and just learn all different kinds of things, dentistry, but also practice management and those skills that you want when you're eventually going to be an owner. Absolutely. I think thousands of years ago, they had something called an apprenticeship model where you learn directly under a mentor and dentistry, because it's so technical and hands-on, you need an apprenticeship model to accelerate your learning. And I think my friends tell me, I didn't do one, but GPRs and AEGDs can be hit or miss. And now I guess what happened in between that first job and how you got to where you are now? Oh my gosh, that could be six hours. Um, (laughs) The biggest mistake I made in my eight years of dentistry is I bounced around too much and I didn't understand that the longer you stay at a practice, the more you'll see your work coming back six months, a year later, and the more you're going to learn. It's very painful and embarrassing to be in a practice and be new and six months, the crime you did just failed. Or eight months later, the feeling you did popped out. But you have to experience that if you're going to get better. And I, I probably had an average of 18 months for every associateship because I was trying to find the perfect one. And there is no a perfect associateship out there. And where you are now, did you purchase it from someone or did you do a startup? How did that work? I don't have the courage to do a startup. I purchased <laughs> uh, an existing practice in Bloomfield Hills. Okay. It was around, I think, 45 years. So it was a dying fee-for-service practice, just meaning that patients were really old, not a lot of patients. So I had to put a lot of sweat equity into the practice to build it back up. Yeah, that's something I'm always talking to my parents about, actually, because they are not anything to do with dentistry. So I just kind of try to explain to them like the different practice models, all these things. And when it comes to fee-for-service versus like taking insurance and everything, they moved down to Florida and like all the dentists in their area are fee for service. But I feel like in Metro Detroit, it's not as common from what I can tell, but you would definitely know more than me because you're working in it now. I think dentists are slowly dropping PPO plans. So I'm not sure when they did the cutoff. I think 2013 Delta Premier stopped accepting dentists and the newer dentists still take PPOs, but a lot of the older dentists are dropping those plans in my area, at least from my experience. And if you've been working for eight years, you missed that cutoff also. I was in a very weird position where I was in something called PPO slash Premier Plus. Okay. It's like it's Premier, but less reimbursement, but higher than PPO. Okay. So you're just a little middle ground. (laughs) It's still garbage though. So I dropped it as well. That's awesome. That, I mean, that is something I would love to do a fever service practice. I just don't know like how I would go about buying into an existing practice if that isn't the structure and trying to drop insurances and changing it. I think you have to have really great communication skills and like a lot of trust from your patients for them to stick around and like understand that they can still get care out of network. A hundred percent. And I think too, and maybe other dentists won't agree with me. I have really limited my practice to biomimetic restorative dentistry. So I don't do extractions, I don't do implants, I don't do root canals, but I really have honed my skills. So I'm not being cocky, but I'm really good in one area. So I can charge a higher fee because I know I can deliver that care. 
And I think if you want to be fee for service, you have to somehow separate yourself from your competitors. Do you want to expand on what biomimetic dentistry is for people that don't know? Yes. The simplest way to explain it is there's a traditional way of building a tooth back up or let's say cutting a crown. So crowns, the way you learn in dental school is based off retention. You get parallel walls, you get four millimeters and you smash the crown and glue it on. Biomimetic dentistry is drilling as little tooth structure as possible and then bonding the crown onto the tooth while preserving all the natural tooth that will keep that tooth healthy long-term. So it's really minimally invasive dentistry. And at what point after graduation were you kind of exposed to that CE, that research that made you interested to go in that avenue and really hone in your skill set? Probably two years ago, I started my journey, but the frustrations of dentistry for me started day one. And maybe you've had this experience too, where patient comes in, large MOD on 13, a premolar, doesn't cause them pain, but they need a crown. You do the crown on the tooth and now it hurts. And they're saying to you, doc, what the heck? I had no pain before. I gave you a thousand bucks and now I have pain. What did you do to me? And every dentist experiences that. And my mind is like, there's got to be a better way to fix teeth than making people more sensitive at the procedures. Definitely. I know it's so hard, even like if someone goes to a dentist that maybe is underdiagnosing or they tend to be more conservative and watch things and they move to a new dentist and they're like, actually, I think you need X, Y, Z treatments. And they're like, I've never even had a filling before. Like, you don't know what you're talking about, but it's like just different tactics and different diagnosing skills and maybe different technology available. So it's really hard to, I think, communicate with patients when there's so many different types of dentistry out there. A hundred percent. And I think Haley, you're, you're alluding to a great point that when you buy a practice, although you want to have similar values as the dentist, you have to kind of treat them plan similarly, or you're going to either scare all these patients away or have so much more work that you can't complete. So that's a good point you brought up. And before we get into other advice for, I guess, like looking into what kind of practice you want to buy, can you tell us a little bit more about just your practice structure? Like, are you the only doctor? Do you have associates? How big is your team? It's just me. I'm by myself. Mm -hmm. I have five team members. I have two assistants, two hygienists, and one front desk who's also like administrative as well. Has that been working well for you? Do you think you'll stay solo or do you think eventually you'll maybe get an associate? So this is for another day, but (laughs) I was in a business partnership two years ago that ended very, very poorly. And we separated legal battle, all this stuff. And I was jaded and I left to be by myself. But to be honest, practicing by yourself is lonely. And it's nice to have another dentist in the office to bounce ideas off. So I'm not sure if I'm ready to get back into a relationship, but maybe down the road, I I will. Yeah. And I also think it's different between an associate that at the end of the day, yes, they're a trained dentist, but you're still their boss versus a partner is a whole other dynamic, I guess. A hundred percent. And you really can't bounce ideas off someone unless they also share payroll. 
Because unless they also feel the pressure of overhead and paying the bills, you just can't connect on the same level business-wise, not clinical-wise, but business-wise. Yeah, they don't have the same like skin in the game. Like they can care oh a my lot, gosh. but not the 100%, same percent Haley. Yeah. yeah. No, I definitely understand what you're saying. So for dental students that are looking to buy a practice eventually, what is some advice you would give them? The biggest advice I can give anyone looking to buy a practice is you have to be in an initial position where you're not desperate to buy a practice. You have to have the ability to walk away because it's, it's like buying a house. It's like getting married. That decision, although it won't be fatal if you make a mistake, it's a really big deal if you buy the wrong practice. So never feel desperate. There's no perfect practice out there. Any broker that's telling you this is a great deal, they're probably not telling you the truth. Did you work with a broker when you found the practice you were going to buy initially, or did you just go through like friends that you knew, like in the dental community? Most brokers, if not all represent the seller, not the buyer. So that's really important to understand. The broker has no interest in you, except they want your money. They have no, what's called fiduciary duty to you. They're only making sure the buyer gets the best deal, but the brokers don't tell you that. So no, I worked basically on my own to find this practice. And what were some of the things that were kind of on your personal like wish list, things you were looking for? I wanted to be in a upper middle class or upper class neighborhood. I knew if I had any shot going fee for service and any shot doing biomedics and cosmetics, I had to be in an affluent area. That does that does make sense. Did you grow up near Bloomfield Hills? Kind of. I grew up in Sterling Heights, Michigan, which is maybe 30, 35 minutes east of Bloomfield Hills, but it's basically the other side of the tracks considered the Bloomfield Hills. Yeah, I definitely heard of it. I was just curious. So do you feel like, I guess you were able to, well, obviously you were, but how were you able to bring your practice from what you said, kind of in like a dying state when you bought it to where it is now able to support everything you want to do? It really comes down to listening to your patients and proving to them that you really care about them. And I read this concept called post-purchase follow-up. And in your brain, if you give someone a bunch of money and you never hear from them after the purchase, you kind of feel like they robbed you, even if they did a good job. So I really made it a point in the past 18 months. I had my front desk call every patient the next day, not hygiene patients, but every patient I worked on just to show them that although you gave me a bunch of money for this procedure, I still really care about you. And I care that the work is good. Yeah, that makes a big difference. And like you said, or like I've heard for fee for service, you have to have like a little bit extra level of kind of like schmoozing skills almost I've heard that like because patients might be more inclined to go elsewhere you have to really give them a reason like you were saying like a differentiator for why they want to be with you 100% all my patients have my personal cell phone mm-hmm. and they can I tell them they can call me at any time if I'm awake if I'm not changing diapers or not sleeping <laughs> I can answer their phone call I'll come in on a Sunday Because I know that these people, they can go anywhere for their dentistry, but they choose to pay cash to see me. Yeah, 
that makes a lot of sense. And I guess speaking of your family, I'm sure it's changed over the past eight years, kind of as a new grad, you're probably very eager to just learn and work a lot versus now I've noted, I looked up your practice. I saw you're open like four days a week, I guess, other than emergencies and everything. So how have you worked to develop a work-life balance and what does that look like for you? I don't have a work-life balance. <laughs> um, I'm a terrible example for that. The only two things in my life that matter are number one, my family, and then number two, the business. So I just split my time that way. I go to bed at 10 p.m. every night. I wake up at 4 a.m. every morning. And if I'm not with my kids, I'm working. And if I'm not working, I'm with my kids. Those are the only, or maybe podcasting, but those are the only things I do. And I guess how did you figure out that you were going to be able to kind of make time for a family while also managing a practice. Cause I've one of my dental friends, he's a practice owner out in Philadelphia. And he is basically like a practice is like a three-year-old that never grows up. Like it's constantly having problems. You always have to attend to it. So he's like, it's basically like having another child. I don't know if you relate to any of that at all. That is it. A, that person is so smart that yeah. man or woman who said that, um, <laughs> I guess the way I look at it is at the end of my life, there's only one regret I couldn't live with. And that's not spending enough time with my wife and my kids, my family, anything else regret I had, I'd be okay with it. So I always make them a priority first over the practice. Definitely. And then what I'm not hearing is that you care for your own needs a ton. Probably does that fall to the back burner sometimes? Uh, it's probably like behind the back burner. And that's, (laughs) I think you'll, you'll probably experience this one day too. You're young. All you want to do is take care of your family. All you want to do is take care of your, uh, your patients. And then you forget about yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge thing I'm always trying to work on, but you're so right, Haley. I don't really take care of myself. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to criticize. I'm just kind of bringing to light that it's so hard to do Like you can't do everything. People have to you have to make sacrifices somewhere and you have to find a way to do something that makes your life feel valuable and fulfilled to yourself. And like you said, that's really spending every extra time that you have with your family, which I think is awesome. Thank you. And do you have really little kids? You said how many kids? I have four daughters. Wow. <laughs> I have a five-year-old. I have a three-year-old and my twins are two years old. Wow. So that is a very full family. That's awesome. So, I mean, we're so blessed to have young, healthy kids. Mm -hmm. Um, There are times where you're you're looking at these kids and you're like, I just want to lay on the floor and go to bed. And you can't, (laughs) but you really lack sleep when you have such young kids. Yeah, I bet. I can't even imagine. I think about like, oh, like life's pretty chill. Like I have school, whatever. But like all I have to worry about at the end of the day is myself. Yeah, exactly. It's like hard to comprehend, like being fully responsible for another person for 18 years, but that's parenting and I'll get yeah. there when it's time. <laughs> so we kind of talked about different things that you weren't expecting once you entered into working as a dentist, but is there anything that sticks out that's kind of surprised you the most about your life as a dentist? hundred percent. Um, Fixing teeth, although you have to be very, very, very good at fixing teeth, it's kind of like the last thing in your patient's mind. If you really don't open up your heart to your patients, they're going to go somewhere else. 
they're looking for somebody who actually cares. And I didn't think in the beginning, I thought if I tell them I went to Michigan, I'm really good at biomimetics. I use a rubber dam. They'll love me. They don't give a crap about any of that. They care. They want to know that you care about them. Definitely. That's something Michigan tries to teach us too, through like our psychology classes too. So yeah. I know they're very much like patients don't care what you know till they know how much you care. That's and a, that sounds wow. so corny, but um, it's corny, but it's true, right? It's true. I'm the same way with the doctors I see. Yeah. If I go to the dermatologist, I want to make sure that they actually care about me. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And dentistry is so personal. Like a lot of different health professions, that's kind of relating back to like COVID stuff, but they, you can do your whole visit with them. You're both in your masks, you're sitting a distance away. But the dentist, you are up close and personal with them. And a lot of people, if they have dental problems, they might be like embarrassed of it. Like they hate their smile or they don't know why they have like this problem where their mouth smells or whatever. Like it's very personal. And oftentimes I think, again, might come with some different trauma, fear, embarrassment, all different emotions that we as the dentist are left to help them through. That's so true. The point you made about patients feeling embarrassed if you ever make a patient feel embarrassed about their teeth, they're gone forever. So mm-hmm. you really have to make sure when you come in, you tell them wherever your mouth is at right now, it's totally okay. And then we're going to move at the pace you want to move at to get it better. And they'll feel like, okay, he or she's not judging me for having cavities. They just want to help me. Yeah. I really like how you said that. I'll have to use those words when I'm talking to my new patients too. Like I definitely try to be encouraging use like a little compliment sandwich like good could improve good or something to help yeah but I like, like how you said that so I'm gonna keep that in my mind yeah absolutely do you have any closing thoughts or like really final points you want to leave people with I do and this may take another minute for me to explain this yeah of course um there's so much research in psychology and even in sports and business about competency and self-esteem in your job. And I remember being in dental school and hating every second of it. I hated it because I was bad at it. And I remember being maybe the first five years out and thinking like, I just made a huge mistake. Why am I a dentist? I, I hated it. And I want to tell any student listening, if you think you made a huge mistake, you did not. You're just bad at dentistry. But guess what? Everybody early is bad at dentistry. And the only way dentistry gets better is if you get better and you can absolutely get better. So if you're depressed about being a dentist, I promise it gets better when your clinical skills and communication skills increase. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I know that certain people listening might be going through some struggles. So I know that that's going to really hit home for certain people. And I really appreciate those words. I also, that made me, think I've had a lot of people on this podcast too, that aren't even clinical dentists. They went into dentistry and they went a different route. So if they graduate, they practice, they keep trying to get better and it's just not working out or they hate it. There are so many other things you can do as a dentist too. So there's yeah, absolutely. Don't lose hope basically is definitely the message. Don't give up whatever you're doing. Don't give up. Definitely. So do you want to mention your podcast? Eventually I know we're going to get a episode recorded on there and like any social media practice, anything you want to promote is definitely a good time. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm trying to beg Haley to come onto my podcast. (laughs) I have a podcast called Toothface the Podcast, the other side of dentistry. 
And our focus is not clinical. It's everything on the other side of dentistry. We record all the interviews in person. I have a podcast studio, which I'm sitting in now, in my dental office. So if you're on YouTube, Spotify, Instagram, go to Toothface Podcast and check out some clips. I think you'll really like it. Awesome. I think that's everything for this episode. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Haley. Absolutely.